Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and challenge us, that you would be with us, that you would help us hear from your scriptures and somehow uniquely and powerfully that we might hear you speak through your word. We pray that you would open up our ears even now, open up our hearts and our minds even now, open up our lives that we might be changed, that we might become more like not just David, but like Jesus. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I can find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made... For another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. Throughout Lewis's writings, he points towards a better place, a more real country, a truer home. Toward the end of the Narnia series, one of Lewis's characters states, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked like this. And maybe there's something in us that feels this same longing for a, for a better place or a more real country or a, or a truer home. And maybe it's not about location. Maybe it's found in God. Maybe this is where we find a deeper sense of stability or a deeper sense of satisfaction or a deeper sense of contentment or a deeper sense of belonging. Maybe this is what we are really longing for, even as we look for it in so many other places. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let me remind you where we are and where we're going. In our Lenten series, we're looking at the person of David, who was known as a man after God's own heart. And we recognize uh, that this goes in two different directions, really. David's heart is both aligned with God, a man after God's own heart, and it's aimed towards a man after God's own heart. David's heart takes after God's heart. It's built in the same way. It feels the same things. It's passionate about the same purposes. It's the same kind of heart, aligned with God's heart. And David's heart is also aimed towards God's heart. 
David loves God, longs for God, pursues God, follows after God. And as we think about both of these, we recognize that our hearts could be more aligned with and aimed towards God's heart. Not least because our hearts are too often disheveled or distracted or distant, too often busy with our own things, our own concerns, our own worries, too often chasing after all of our other loves. Which brings us really to the question that's beneath this series, could we reset and maybe even reorder our loves such that God would carry a, a greater gravitational pull for our hearts? Could we learn to love God more? especially in this Lenten season. Because it strikes me that maybe that is part of the problem. I go about my week loving all manner of different things, pursuing all manner of different things, focused on all manner of different things. But could I learn to love God more, pursue God more, focus on God more, and would that change how then I live my week? As we get started in this, I would invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles then to 2 Samuel chapter 5, as we fast forward our story a little bit more. And as we will see, the landscape has changed yet again. David has now gone from a help and a hero to a threat and a fugitive, and now to a leader and ultimately a king. If you recall from last week, David was on the run from Saul. David, with God's help, continued to elude Saul. That being said, eventually Saul falls in battle, as does Saul's son and David's friend, Jonathan. After grieving, David begins to start taking power, consolidating power. Of course, in any kind of dynasty change like this, there are others who would like to keep the status quo. So one of Saul's other sons becomes the king of Israel, the northern part of the country. David takes the throne of Judah, the southern part. And that makes sense. He's from Judah. He makes his capital in Hebron. That's in Judah. That being said, through force and through God's will and through some less than reputable allies, Saul's son is brought down. And finally, David is ready to finally reunite the nation, to become king. And so let's start reading now in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. 
Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And we'll stop there for a moment. All of the tribes of Israel come to the capital, to Hebron, and they all recognize David's claim to the throne. They also remember David's military might, as well as recognizing David's shepherding leadership. All in all, not bad qualities for a king. And so the people all agree. And David makes a covenant with them as he is anointed both king of Judah and Israel, finally reuniting the kingdoms, the south and the north. Then in verse 6, David turns his attention to a new capital city, Jerusalem. The only problem is it's an occupied city. There's a foreign power living there. What's more, Jerusalem is so well defended by the people living there, the Jebusites, that they claim that if there were only blind and lame people in this city, we would still be able to keep David out because our walls are so big, because this hill is so tall, because this city is virtually unassailable. But David finds a way to send some men, if not the whole army, through some kind of water shaft into the heart of the city, and they're able to conquer Jerusalem. And David makes this new city his capital. It also is worth noting, it does a couple of things to unite north and south. David's former capital was in Judah. Jerusalem is in Israel. And this then curries some favor with the northern tribes. What's more, Jerusalem has never been Israelite land until this point in the story. So it's relatively neutral. It's not like David then moved into someone else's city. He took his own city. Not long after this, some of the other neighboring kings start to recognize not just David's authority, but his military prowess. And so they send gifts, and he's able to build a palace for himself. And all of this helps David to know that God has exalted David and established his kingdom. But therefore, our question becomes, how will David respond to God's generosity? And so we keep reading now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 17. We're going to come back to chapter 6 in two weeks. Chapter 7 begins. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. 
I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Amen. David's response to God and God's faithfulness is to be faithful back to God. And in thinking about this, David decides that the time is right to build God a house as well. And at first blush, this sounds like a great idea. It's a faithful thing to do. Plus, what's recognized strategically, this consolidates not just the political power in Jerusalem, not just the military power in Jerusalem, but now also the religious power as well. And so maybe David's motivation is a little bit mixed here, but we don't quite know. That said, that's the plan. Until the prophet comes along and says, no. Nathan hears from God that this isn't David's job, not David's calling. While David has done a lot of things right, David has also made his share of mistakes, has a lot of blood on his hands. And so this is going to end up being someone else's job, namely David's son. But then God turns the table on David and chooses to bless him even more. Because he will establish a house, a dynasty for David's name. And even here, God is pointing towards something more and bigger and better as God really points towards a future king in the line of David, namely Jesus. Amazingly, God makes a covenant with David, promising faithfulness to David, not because of anything David does, but simply because of who God is. This is the first covenant we've seen since God made a covenant with Moses. And David rightly rejoices. But what I want us looking at in the remainder of our time today is this longing that David has. And I think we catch glimpses of it 
all throughout these passages as he works to establish a capital and establish a house and establish a temple. David is longing for something deeper, isn't he? He's doing all this work. He's building all these places ultimately because he's longing for some kind of stability, some amount of satisfaction, contentment, some some kind of belonging. And in some ways, he looks in all the normal places, a nicer neighborhood, a a nicer house, and a nicer church. And yet all throughout this passage, we see glimpses of where David's home is truly found. Because in both of these passages, we see that it's God who actually is establishing David, providing for David, exalting David. In other words, it's in God that David finally finds home. Not in what he takes, and not in what he builds. So briefly, I want us to look back at those two passages, those two houses, really, as we try and figure out how our deeper longings are also only found in God. In the first passage, David is working so hard to make a place for himself to to feel like he's home. He unites the country, recaptures and restores a capital city, builds himself a house. And in all of this, we also see how it's actually been God all along who has been accomplishing this for David. So much so that it's only when David is finally at home in his royal house that he finally sees it. It's only then that he finally knows that God has established him, exalted him. After all that work, he finally is able to see it's actually been God doing the work, helping him feel like he's home. In other words, David doesn't truly feel at home until he realizes that it has been God who has provided that stability and that satisfaction and that belonging, not David. Which is sort of ironic. David thought he'd feel at home because of his house. And yet it's God who provides David that actual satisfaction. I wonder if we sometimes feel that too. If I get this, if I find that, if I live here, if I have that, if I have the right anything, everything, then I'll feel like I'm home. Then I'll feel content. Then I'll feel like I belong. Only that never works. Because what we're really longing for isn't found in something we can build. It's found in who God is. Because we can only feel rooted and at peace if we find ourselves in God. Which brings us to the second house, the second passage. Sorry. Because now David wants to make a house for God, because he thinks that this is what God would want, as if God needs an address to feel stable, as if God needs status to feel established, feel secure. What's more, we recognize that up to this point, God has specifically and intentionally always chosen to keep his place temporary, transitory, 
Because God has always been seeking to be with us, to stay with us, and God recognizes that we always are on the move. It's always our desire to make God a a bigger place, a place that's more awesome, more stationary, more permanent. And like David, some of that stems from our desire to bring more glory to God. But sometimes that also stems from our desire to bring some more glory to ourselves. And maybe sometimes there's a little bit of our recognition that if God's house is more static, then we have the option to move away from where God is. Because, of course, if you build God a house, you can then go somewhere else. Whereas if God is always with you, then God is always with you. It's harder to get away. Which again reminds us of our good news that God has moved near. Because the reality is that God has always wanted to be with us. Originally, God said, I need you to build me a a tabernacle, a tent, because I want to dwell among you. I want to live with you. And now we're trying to build God a house. On the one hand, it's a place where we can come together and meet God, but then it's also a place that we can not go to so that we don't have to meet with God. And we can even conclude that God is not with us when we are not here. Anyway, David thinks he will feel more stable when God has a proper house. But again, God points out that God is the one who brings this deeper sense of security and contentment and belonging, and so maybe that's not what's needed. And it's only found in God. And so God has to remind David that all of his stability and contentment is a gift from God, and God will continue to establish him and his reign and his line. God will continue to help David feel secure. God will continue to help David know that God is near, which is why God has come close in the first place, which is why God has done all of this in the first place. God seems to be telling David, don't get so caught up in all of this stuff in my name, but instead be more aware that I am with you in it, through it, around you. I don't need a house because I am already with you. Of course, the better news in all of this, the the good news really, is that in the New Testament, God takes us to the next level through David's offspring, Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us in him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Because, you see, Jesus is the one who builds the house. And God dwells in us, which is where we find our stability, which is where we find our contentment, which is where we find that we do belong. In light of all that, Let me close by reading this Psalm of David. Psalm 27 says, 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. And his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witness rise up against me, sprouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us find ourselves in you. That you would help us find more contentment, stability, and belonging not in what we build and not in what we do and not in what we accomplish, but in you. Help us recognize that our satisfaction ultimately is found in who you are. And we pray that you would help us know that you have moved near, that you are close, that you are with us and even in us. And may this then change how we live and what we long for, because we can feel you moving through us. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray all these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.